Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from 816Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the third episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World is Sean O'Sullivan, the founder of SOSV, a billion-dollar global venture capital firm that seeds 150 companies a year through startup development programs that support entrepreneurs across hardware, bioengineering, China, mobile apps, and the blockchain. Sean has pretty much done it all. He grew up on welfare, found his way to technology in the 1970s, and started his first company in his early 20s. 
That company, called MapInfo, was the original street map technology well before the days of the internet. Sean formed more companies and began angel investing with the proceeds. Along the way, he created 20 patents for ride-sharing, coined the term cloud computing, appeared in Ireland's version of Shark Tank, and formed a series of startup development programs to support early-stage entrepreneurs. Our conversation covers Sean's path to entrepreneurship and investing, accelerator strategy, sourcing ideas, working with entrepreneurs, preparing businesses to exit SOSV's programs, investing in follow-on rounds, drivers of success, and positioning in the venture ecosystem. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Going into this year, we'd love your help spreading the word about the show. So each week, right in this spot, we're going to give you a fun little reason why. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, why not reach out to your parents? If they're anything like my folks, they probably aren't that technologically inclined and might need to learn how to use the podcast app on their phone. Reach out to them, send your love, and show them how to use the app, and then tell them you might want to listen to Capital Allocators. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Sean O'Sullivan in this, the third episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Sean, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. I'm really curious to ask, what was your childhood like? I had a happy childhood. It was a difficult childhood. I was born one of nine children. I was the eighth of nine. And my biological father was a lawyer in New York City. And when I was three, our family, because of abuse, effectively, had to leave New York City to get away from him. And so we went up to upstate New York in Skyharry, New York, where we had a hard scrabble existence for a bunch of years with having to, for example, go on welfare. He was deadbeat dad, so he wasn't paying the child support. All nine of us were under the age of 12. So she had to rely on public assistance. So that was a difficult experience growing up because we were underfed and it was a very cold place to live in upstate New York. And we had wood stoves. And if we went to sleep at night in the winter, maybe you'd put a glass of water by your bed and it would be ice in the morning. So it was a really, really hard way to grow up. But summers were fine. I would work on farms. The Westheimers had a carrot farm and they would pay a buck an hour for you to weed. Started working there, I think it was eight. I worked on hay farms, bailing hay. But I got away from that hard scrabble existence by the world of reading. I read a lot of books. I actually set a record in fifth grade for the most books ever read. It was like 535 books in one year. Actually, it's just the school year. So if you think of the school year as being 180 days, it was actually more like two or three books a day because it didn't include the summer. As a fifth grader. Wow. Yeah. I got into these series like the Tom Swift series and the Nancy Drew series and Charlotte's Web. It was just fifth grade reader. But it's also what got me interested, actually, in science and engineering. And how did that take shape early in your career? There's a program called the Civilian Employment Training Act, which was for the poorest of the poor. And basically, it was supposed to give you jobs to get you ready for real work experience in life. And so I got a job. The jobs that they would give you, of course, were mowing lawns or being a janitor. So I was a janitor at my school which is actually kind of a humiliating thing to do as a 14-year-old kid, you can imagine it. And I went down to the county office building. Sam France allowed me to just work as a data entry person in that office. 
initially. And then I was able to start doing data entry and working with the printouts and things like that. Then I was a programmer and he gave me really big jobs. Like I programmed the election system and I programmed the inventory systems for the county and I programmed all these other things. And then he took me off the aid program and started paying me as a regular staff person. So I was making more than all my high school buddies, twice as much or three times as much as the minimum wage. And he just gave me a real shot. So deeply grateful. And my mom was so committed to education that made sure that all of us went to college, which was just a great achievement. So my way through out of poverty was to go into technology. That was a skill that I had. If I was born in the 1800s where riding horses or something was really important, I would have failed as a man. (laughs) But when I was born and where I was growing up in this age and era, I'm actually really good with computing and whatnot. And where did you take that early interest in computers kind of once you came out of school? I graduated high school at 16 and I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and I decided since I thought I knew everything there was to know about programming computers at that point, I decided to become an electrical engineer, which is what I studied, and then computer and systems engineering. And then I went through all of the engineering programs that you go through, multidisciplinary engineering programs you go through in a regular engineering school. How did you go from that early experience in engineering to the business side? Well, I started a company right out of university. So RPI had one of the first, back then you used to call those things incubators, where you had startups that wanted to be tenderly coiled in the arms of the mothership. So I was inspired by all of the companies, all the students that were basically starting companies out of school. And I thought, wow, I would love to be able to start my own company. So I had had some experience while working my way through school. I went to IBM and worked for some bigger companies. And so I had that experience working for bigger companies. And I really decided early on that I wanted to start my own company, just have more impact and more control over my destiny. And what was the kernel of your first idea? Well, I don't know what it is about my face or whatever, but I walked down the street and back in those days, people would pull over their car and just roll down the window and said, hey, do you know how to get to wherever. (laughs) And I would say, oh yeah, you're about a mile away or it's just around this corner or whatever. So I was just confounded by the sheer number of people that just didn't know their way around. So I decided to try to solve that problem. And actually we did. We created a company called MapInfo and we put all street maps onto computers. And that became a very popular company with eventually hundreds of millions in revenues and became a public company about seven years after I started it. And where does that company sit relative to maybe more commonly today? You think of Waze and Google Maps. So MapInfo created the industry of street mapping on computers. So if you type an address into a computer, whether it's your smartphone or on your PC, and you see a street map, that's what we invented. But we never went to the consumer side of it. There were about a thousand different companies that used our core technology and our products and built their products around it. So everyone from the Microsofts and the Oracles would bundle it into their products. And also just hundreds of smaller value-added resellers, we called them back in the day, who had a variety of different applications for school buses or for using routing or whatever type of other mapping use you'd have. What did you learn from this very early experience right out of school building a company that was so successful so early on? Well, I probably learned a number of wrong things, which was that, oh, I'm God and that whatever I do is going to work the next time. And I found out the next company I tried to start that it isn't quite so easy. What I did learn and what I was extraordinarily grateful for was the mentors that helped me out. I didn't know what a cap table was or how to sell to big corporate customers or anything that you need to know, how to hire and fire people. All of those things I had to sort of suffer through. So you had the success, you had the failure. Where did your path take you in entrepreneurship into investing from there? So as I said, my first company went public. I was around 28, I think, when it went public. And so I had to do something with all that money. This was actually a big deal back then. I think it was 1994. And so we were the 28th largest software company in the United States at the time. And we went public at a decent valuation. We were profitable and had been profitable from very early on. So we didn't need to take a lot of investment money, actually. 
Greylock was our only VC investors, and they only invested after we'd already been profitable. After we went public, as I said, okay, well, I got this money. It was like $14 million. It's listed in the papers, et cetera. And that seemed like an infinite amount of money. That was my part of the IPO. And so that was after taxes and charity, I gave away a million bucks or whatever, and then seven million in taxes. So I had about seven million left or something. And so I needed to do something with that. And so I started investing it in startups for the most part, and also other public companies. How did your path take you from that initial angel investing to what became SOSV? It was called SOS Ventures initially, and it was retitled SOSV 10 years later. I didn't actually consider it a full-time job because I was just a guy with a checkbook going around and I knew the technology and I knew the people. And so I was just investing in friends' technologies. But after, I'd say, eight years of doing other things, I was running other businesses, I was in the music industry, I was in the film industry, I was a humanitarian worker. So after a while, I noticed that this had grown to be worth 70 or $80 million. And so I said, okay, I probably should treat this a little bit more seriously. And so I brought together a couple of people in the back office to just manage the financial aspects. And then I brought on some investment partners as it grew to be more like 150 million or something a few years after that. So you started doing this, had some success. And then as you started to formulate it as a more formal investment enterprise, what was the strategy that you decided to create from the activities you'd been doing? Well, I had always identified with the original engineering, the inventors, the foundation of the company. That's where I was the best at effectively. In the companies that I created, and I did create other startups after that first one, the most comfortable time was when it was less than 100 people, where I really could walk around the place and be able to have the greatest impact. So I really liked being at that stage of the business, the earliest stages of the business, and even earlier when it's just really a couple of founders and the investors just figuring out what the course of the investment would need to look like. So that's why I got into the very, very early stages at the seed stage and the pre-seed stage. I was writing checks of generally a couple hundred thousand dollars, which would make me sort of more of a super angel rather than a regular angel. $250,000 or $500,000 check into the startups when nobody else was writing checks of that size other than the professional investors. So that's what got me focused at the early stage. And I also just thought back in terms of my own growth and my own experience, how what had made me successful in the beginning was that mentorship that others had provided. And so when I saw these mentorship models developing, actually one of the real first people to develop this sort of at scale was Bill Gross, not the hedge fund Bill Gross, the other Bill Gross, the Idea Lab Bill Gross from Pasadena, who was really the precursor for all accelerator programs. His was run more as incubator style thing rather than the model, which I really liked the most, which is the Techstars model, where you actually have cohorts of people that were investing. And actually, I co-invested with Brad Feld of the Founder Group on a number of investments in the 1990s and in the 2000s. I still co-invest with him these days. But when he started up Techstars in Boulder and then went to expand it to another city in Boston, one of the guys that I had previously backed and that Brad had previously backed was picked to run Techstars in Boston. And so I became one of the founding backers of Techstars in Boston. So I really loved that model. And I'd been actually looking actively for a model like that for years. And so when I saw that, I said, okay, well, let me do this in a place that's never been done before, which was China. And so I started China Accelerator, which was the first accelerator program in Asia. And that became over the last 10 years, a runaway success in that region. So let's fast forward to where we are today. How do you describe your current strategy? Well, from China Accelerator, which was differentiated just by its geography, we really always wanted to invest very deeply into a set where we would be the world leader in. And so from China Accelerator, which was started in Dalian and now is in Shanghai mostly, we then launched the Hacks Accelerator because in China, there are a lot of people that create hardware companies and it just didn't make any sense to have a software and a hardware company. There's very little overlap in terms of what the problems are, who the investors are in those spaces and in terms of how they need to deal with the physical issues versus the 
SaaS businesses of the world. So we decided to create new accelerators deeply focused on deep tech verticals where we would be the only people in the world that had that level of focus. And so we created Hacks, which was originally in Shenzhen and now is in Newark, New Jersey as well. We just announced the expansion of that to the U.S. It's also in Tokyo and and one other place, Xi'an and San Francisco as well. We have locations for Hacks. So that's the world's first hardware accelerator, a physical device accelerator built on the theme that if you're going to create new physical devices, they need to be cloud connected. They need to have computing capability in them in order to vastly increase what's possible for humanity to do with these new devices. And we've all seen how watches have become more than what our old watches were or how headphones are suddenly capable of reading our brain waves and actually doing other feedback loops for our bodies, et cetera. There are so many different things that can be done with physical devices once you start to cloud connect them. So we created these programs specifically targeted around megatrends that were unstoppable megatrends in the industry. So hardware would need to be cloud connected, would need to have AI built into it, and would need to basically replace all existing physical devices over time. And so that was a megatrend. It would take 20, 30 years for that to fully play out. And we just said, okay, let's be a real leader in that. Let's actually put tens of millions of dollars of our own money in building out the facilities and the prototyping and building out the staff that can really advise and help companies, help startups actually get their products through the manufacturing process and out into the market. So that was one. And then we also did IndieBio, which is our life sciences accelerator, where we had a similar deep tech theme that was started in 2014, originally in Europe, and then in San Francisco in 2015. And that also followed the idea that if you take scientists and you can make them entrepreneurs, you can actually transform what society is capable of doing by providing these comprehensive new solutions. What are some of the other accelerators that you've created? The ones that we are running that are active and successful, besides those three, China Accelerator, Hacks, and IndieBio, are Mox, which is a global mobile-first app development. It's focused in, on cross-border internet, but it's predominantly in Asia, although it is everywhere in the world. That's run out of Taipei. And then the other program that is more of a virtual program is D-Lab, which is a blockchain accelerator type program. We actually don't call them accelerators anymore. We call them startup development programs because we don't run in the way that most people run accelerators. We give a lot more money. We put a lot more talent and network into the process than what a normal accelerator would be able to do. Like one area I, I specifically didn't highlight is software. We're not a huge player in software. We do in Asia, we do have a lot of cross-border internet applications and marketplaces, but in the rest of the world, we're not a massive player like your traditional accelerator programs would be like the YCs and the Techstars and all the other accelerator programs. They focus on those areas predominantly or exclusively. So let's dive into a little bit the startup development program and maybe walk through in stages, starting with where did these ideas come from? The best ideas always come from the entrepreneurs and we can be researching themes and we know areas that we care deeply about. We're super active in climate change. We're super active in the future of food. We're super active in medical devices. In fact, if you wanted to look at our general themes, it's human and planetary health in IndieBio. In Hacks, it would also include human and planetary health, but also the reindustrialization of society in particular the Western societies and the rebirth of our manufacturing sector. But where are the ideas coming from? They're always coming from the entrepreneurs. They know where we can help and they know we have facilities and capabilities and financing to help connect them to later stage capital as well. But we're always finding that the best ideas are straight out of the minds of the entrepreneurs. How do you find the entrepreneurs? So we are getting 8,000 applications per year. That's a lot considering the specialties that we are in. And we select about 130 of those companies a year for investment. And our typical investment package is at least a quarter of a million dollars and more often around a half a million dollars for each company that's accepted into one of our startup development programs. So outside of fitting into one of your themes, what criteria do you use to figure out who you want to help start up? The things that we're looking for from the founding team are a capability and an excellence in 
being able to deliver real working products. So unlike most investors that wait until the product is already working and they already have product fit, we are actually looking at companies that haven't shipped a product in many cases. In most cases, they don't have real revenue. So that means that we have to look at what they've done in the past, what they have been able to be successful at prior in terms of bringing a change to the world. And that could be on open source projects or that could be in a role that they'd had, even in university or a PhD, some groundbreaking research that they did in discovering some new fundamental property of physics or some new capability in a biological pathway in some cell, in some metabolic process. So we would be looking for those areas where they have real expertise and their ability to attract others around them that are similarly dedicated. Take me inside the development program. What is it that you and your team do to help them out? If we were to look at, say, IndieBio, we have a wet lab facilities where they can do their biological work and experiments. And we would have certain scientific goals that we would expect them to achieve during the program that would de-risk them. So obviously, most early stage investors are looking to de-risk everything about the investment that they're making to make it comfortable, make the water safe for later stage investors to be able to come in. And so we have to de-risk the science, we have to de-risk the team, and we have to de-risk the marketplace. And this is why we always require founding teams. I admire the iconic image of one founder driving a business, but that's not realistic. To accomplish anything of significance in the world, you have to build a team around you. And so we're looking for founders to have come in with co-founders from the very start. So they would come in and we'd be working with the team on multiple issues at the same time. Maybe one of the founders would be more focused on the marketplace traction side. And by traction, This could be pharmaceuticals or small molecular therapeutics or other things that may not be actually getting that much traction from a revenue side for years, but we still want to make sure that there's traction in the marketplace with those partners, those pharmaceutical companies, or those researchers that are known in those areas. So it's just about working with all of those traction metrics for the business and then also working on the scientific traction and then also just making sure that the team is really ready and can do fundraising and do all the other things that's necessary to take it from a science project into a a business. What are the expectations of the program? So you're giving them a certain amount of money. There has to be a major inflection point for us to feel satisfied. And so we expect they would have a similar approach and a similar viewpoint that they're coming in, hoping for transformation and hoping that we'll be able to guide them in that transformation. A lot of the issue is helping scientists or engineers recognize how it fits into the industry and what the business models are and reworking the business models and sometimes reworking the science on trying to understand where the economic opportunity is so they'll have a foothold in a marketplace. So that's where the customer engagement side would be kicking in. What does your team look like that's helping all of these startups? There's about 135 people. I know this sounds ridiculous because we're not A16Z and we don't have 10 billion or 20 billion in management. Half of our people are in Asia and our focus for all of our people is working at the program level where they're helping the entrepreneurs one-to-one with the teams. We also do a tremendous amount of deals a year. We're the world's most active investor in life sciences and hardware. And also just generally, we would rank as perhaps the world's third most active seed investor. And I think we make a top 10 in the world's most active series A investors as well. So we have a lot of needs in our back office and our legal teams as well. So each one of the co-working centers, we spend many millions of dollars building out these facilities with the wet labs and with the co-working space. We like to have the teams there on site, which was tough during COVID, but it's great now. And there's the greatest level of learning when everyone's physically together and learning from the other teams, as well as from the mentors that we bring in. So we have adjunct partners that come in and they're very distinguished folks from Stanford and MIT and Harvard and whatnot. The George Church would be a very famous person in the life sciences area, who's an adjunct partner for the Indie Bio programs. And we have other leading thinkers for various other industries like the hardware industries. So we have staff of probably about eight or so people that are constantly there to serve the needs of the startup and help connect them with people. And there's 
probably a group of around 40 of the entrepreneurs, say 12 teams, two or three people, plus maybe some new staff that they hire with the funds that we give them that are based on the facility. And that's where it starts. And in our HACS program, we have bigger facilities, maybe 40,000 square foot facilities with a lot more prototyping space and some of the older teams that stay in the space as well as they continue to get their next runs of their production. So those maybe have 300 people working out of those facilities, 200, 300 people. How does the operating model work to support all those people? When we do a startup development program, we will give the company, say, $500,000, and there'll be, say, $75,000 or $50,000 that will go towards their costs at the program level. All the free rent, the free beer, the free pizza, but also to cover some of our staffing expense for the people that are working to support their businesses. And then we also have sponsorships and things like that. We recently got two $25 million sponsorships. One for the IndieBio New York program, multi-year sponsorship, and then $25 million for the Hacks USA, both from the states, one from the state of New Jersey, one from the state of New York, which economically makes a lot of sense because for every $50 million we invest, there's about a billion dollars that goes into the startups. So this year we invested over $100 million and over $2 billion is going into the startups, creating a lot of economic activity. And how long does it typically take for a company that first receives your funding, a successful one, to work their way through until they are living on their own outside of your program? Well, we'll kick them out (laughs) within six months, generally. So sometimes they'll keep a couple of people there. If we have more space, we have some space to do that. But often they're going to be growing their own businesses. And sometimes they want to create their own cultures, obviously, for the businesses. And that tends to require a space to do that. In the hardware case, because hardware does take a longer time for the prototyping, et cetera, that could be 12 or 18 months and sometimes even two years. And if we have the space to accommodate them, we do. In the life sciences space, generally, it's a shorter period, like six months and sometimes a year. What ends up being the success rate of working their way through that six-month period to making it maybe to the next fundraising round on their own? Not every company succeeds. And I guess one of the things... I would highlight is that we want to take risks that are relatively inexpensive and we can afford for many of those risks to outright fail, honestly. So when we're making these bets, call it a half a million dollars, it's a small enough bet that if the founder can't make it with that business, it's very easy for us to be able to actually write that off. I'd say only 70% of our companies actually make it past that first stage. That is the number that we've been getting out of the Indie Bio program, for example, which is still higher than a lot of the software programs, which are more in the 30% range. How do you think about funding in future rounds of the companies that have successfully made it out of the program? We fund companies at that relatively high level for a first check, and where we're the only check in the business, the only investor in the business. And then we will go on at a similar level on the subsequent rounds. So couple hundred grand to 500,000 on the follow-on rounds, and then up to a million and a half on subsequent rounds after the seed round out of the program. So when a company comes into the program, they may be valued at whatever the typical valuation is, a couple million, three million. And when they leave, they generally raise two to three million out of 10 million pre-money or post-money, depending on how hot the company is. What criteria do you use to decide if you're going to continue to invest in subsequent rounds? Honesty is the number one thing. So we need fundamental radical candor of the founders. And that is actually the primary detractor. It's more likely that people don't meet the profile from a personality perspective than they do not meet the profile from a scientific perspective. By the time they get through our program, their science is generally really well known. If there was ever a company that graduated our programs where we don't feel comfortable about the science, we actually don't let them graduate the program. So that is a screen that we would use as well. How do you think about the commercial side of it? So you're bringing in noted scientists who are developing interesting products, say in IndieBio. Eventually, they have to have the skills to commercialize it as well. I think it's much easier to train a scientist to be an entrepreneur than it is to train a business guy to be a scientist. So we start with people who are incredibly 
focused on customers and that have a desire to see their change be made in the world. For anyone to be an entrepreneur, they have to have a really strong internal drive that they're unsatisfied with the status quo, that they don't like the world the way that it is, and they're incredibly motivated to see a change happen. And those are people that will actually do things that are very unnatural to them, like go and make sales calls when forced. And we will actually force them to make sales calls. We'll give them assignments. Okay, here are 20 people on LinkedIn. Make sure you get through to each and every one of them and let me know next Monday how you did and what they had to say, what were the feedback on the survey. So it's about getting people out of their comfort zones and that's where growth happens. Sometimes it doesn't work just because of personalities. They need to add to their team. And so we will help them to some extent, but really this is their business. We are only a pretty minority player. We aim to own 10 or 12% of the business up to series A. So it is their business and it's their responsibility and their drive that is making the success of the business possible. But it's also their responsibility to build that team around them. We will let them know that in our opinion, they need a new CEO or they need a new business development person or whatever but it's up to them to accept that advice. I'd love to hear more about your experience investing in China. We're also a very active investor in India now, which 20 years ago when I was in India, I would say I would never want to be investing in India. And I do think things have progressed a lot. There was a lot of corruption and a lot of bureaucracy and bureaucracy and corruption go really well together. In China, there's a more laissez-faire attitude about a lot of things, which is good because the government doesn't get in the way. Now, recently, it appears to have changed under Xi Jinping's regime. So we'll see if that bad leading indicator continues, because we could see a tremendous slowdown in the growth of China if current policies proceed. So that's for them to figure out if they care about that or not. So with China, we're concerned, obviously, about the current status quo. And I lived in China for a little bit in 2008, like six months, and was running a business and built a business in China. And that was a very eye-opening experience. But I have to say, it's a very, very productive work environment, as long as you're not working with the government as a customer. Everyone else is very easy to work with. There are issues with corruption as well manufacturers agreeing on how they're going to manufacture the thing. You agree on the parts list, you agree on the assembly quality. And then if you don't have a very, very strong relationship with the manufacturer, they can then substitute lower quality parts and things like that, lower quality materials. And that's one of the benefits that we bring to the equation. We have a lot of leverage because we have 250 hardware companies producing millions and millions of devices every year. So manufacturers are not likely to mess around with a hacks company because of our relationships. And we will point them to better manufacturers in the first place. So you mentioned D-Lab and your dive into blockchain technology. It's obviously a very popular space. I'm curious, how did you find your way into that ecosystem? Actually, we backed the leading Bitcoin futures trading company through our China Accelerator program. It was two Americans and a Brit that started a company called BitMEX. They were working on Hong Kong. They went to a China Accelerator program in Shanghai. They have done extraordinarily well. They've run into some tussles with the SEC more recently, but we're generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue within a few years after attending China Accelerator. So it was a huge success. We were the only venture company to have backed them. And then they became profitable very quickly after exiting our program. They were as profitable as NASDAQ was for a couple of years in there. They've been challenged by Binance, which is now, I think, the world's most active or leading trading platform. But they're still generating many hundreds of millions in revenue and profits, God willing, every year. It's great. They've kicked off huge amounts of dividends and whatnot. We've been happy with that. But because we've been successful with that investment and other investments in the space, we decided to create more of a studio kind of thing with D-Lab. And we're backing, say, six or 10 companies a year that are in the blockchain space, particularly in financial control systems or fintech style innovations in blockchain. Now that you have outside investors, how do you allocate capital across your different development programs? We just look at the metrics. So in an SOSV fund, we're on SOSV4 is the fund we're deploying right now. It's a $277 million fund. We look at what is the megatrend that matters. We're investing for the long term. So we have to be thinking about what does this investment look like in 10 years? 
we're only working on things that we consider megatrends that are not the flash in a pan style social media network for conservatives or something. We're just going for deep tech ventures where the societal trend is unstoppable, where the forces are unstoppable. And so when we look at the deployment of capital, we think, okay, the more we deploy through our accelerators, the better, but we also need to support those companies and be very active in the later stages. So we're looking to make sure that we have enough of a balance that we can be competitive with the top performing players in the VC industry. So taking as a strategy as a whole, what do you see as the drivers of what constitutes those successes? The funny thing is, it's kind of a mix. There's a lot of impact investors in the world today, and I'm in this business for the impact that we create and the societal change that I think we need. And we have an obligation as venture capitalists to provide to society. That's also a big factor in what we choose to invest in. The responsibility that you have as a VC is taking something that has never been made available to the public before and actually making something. There's an expression, the future is already here. It just hasn't been evenly distributed by the science fiction writer, Bill Gibson. And that's really the job of the venture capitalist, to see a future, pick it, back it, and then make sure that it's evenly distributed. You could say that the internet has loads and loads of problems with it. It does. But it is a spectacularly enabling force for billions of people in terms of knowledge, in terms of capabilities, and in terms of productivity, and the lowered cost of life as well. So when we look at things like the future of food, back in 2014, we said, okay, what if we were able to say, a company came to us and they said, we're going to make milk without cows. We said, okay, that's a ridiculous idea. I like that idea. Let's look into that idea. And that was possible back then. And it was possible in gram quantities. But if you're going to make a world where you can make it available to everyone, then that means you're going to need to make that price better than cows can currently compete with. We see this obviously having lots of societal gain in terms of global warming, in particular because of the methane generated by cows, a very, very bad contributor to climate change. So after six or seven years, the company, Perfect Day, it's called, is now selling their ice creams in supermarkets all across the country. And they're hitting tens or hundreds of millions in revenues now. And back in 2014, when we invested in a company that was saying, we're going to make milk without cows, people thought we were crazy. And they had good reason to think we were crazy. It was a long shot. And it's actually happening. When I started my first company, putting street maps on computers, it was crazy. How are you going to get all the addresses? Who's going to do that? How are you going to get all the streets and put those maps into computers? How are you going to figure that out in all these different geographies around the world? Well, it turns out that it took us around seven years to get a million people to be users, to type an address and see street maps, whether that be mostly corporate users or whatever. But it only took another 10 years for that million people to be a billion people. And it only took another two years beyond that for that billion people to be 2 billion people that use that technology and that capability. So you can't change the world by fighting the existing reality. You have to create a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. You can't fight by directly challenging the incumbent. You have to create a new model that makes the incumbent obsolete. So when I did the thing with maps, the incumbent was Rand McNally paper maps in cars or whatever. We made that completely obsolete. There's nobody that bothers to stop me as I'm walking down the sidewalk anymore because they know where they're going now. <laughs> and it's a much better solution. We're always looking for models that make the existing model obsolete. We're always looking for how, when we look at the through line of this technology, does it uplift humanity? So this is me showing the underpinnings of what we're looking for. This is not me talking about returns or anything. But my assumption is that if you can actually affect billions of people, that you'll find a business model that'll make that work and that you'll find a way to bring that light into the world. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking at these points of light, these incredibly bright founders that come to us all the time, and we're trying to unveil their brilliance and magnify it and then fund it and then help other people who also deeply believe in the changes that we're trying to make, enable them to get involved, as Gandhi would say, be the change you want to see in the world. That's the underlying core of what we really do, honestly. 
And it goes beyond just allocating what portion of the money that we put to one startup development program or to another, but it is where we put our weight on the things that we think in the end will ultimately help people. That's the job of a VC is to make those societal advancements that are dramatically beneficial for humanity and for our planet, for our planetary health, for our human health, to make those changes possible. How do you see yourself and SOSV fitting into the ecosystem of venture capital? We're early. <laughs> so I get seven different university research publications that are sent to me. You know, the alumni magazines, and they always talk about the innovations that are made at those universities, whatever. I find the interesting stories in there about some scientists doing something cool. I call them up occasionally, and our people do, call these people up and they say, do you have any postdocs that are really good and really want to actually make this happen in the world? And then we'll take it to market. We've started several companies that way. Most VCs don't do that. They're waiting for somebody to come in and show their PowerPoint presentation of what the traction numbers look like, et cetera. We're starting way earlier. And as a result, we're a helpful piece to the rest of the industry. We are taking ideas that are very early and giving credibility to them, actually. When we put our name behind a company in the life sciences area, you know that we've had numerous PhDs do all the due diligence on it. It's been de-risked. So that's a value add that we create for the VC industry. And then for them, we are entirely dependent on them. We manage a billion dollars, but we are really, really small compared to most people. And we have a huge number of companies that we're putting out. So we can't be on the boards of every one of these companies. We are entirely dependent on having a very collaborative working relationship with the rest of the VC industry, at least those that work in the sectors that we produce companies for. Well, Sean, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions, but before I do, I have to ask you, why is it that you're so well-known in Ireland? Well, in Ireland, I was on a TV show called Dragon's Den, which is the equivalent of the US's Shark Tank. So I was on that show for a couple of years, and for some reason, people watch that show avariciously in Ireland. 40% of the televisions when that show is running, which doesn't happen in the United States, you don't have a show where even 10% of the market turns it on, but it was like 40% of the population would turn that TV show on the night that it was airing. And I was one of the five judges on that. And as a result of even being a judge on that program, I was sort of drafted into writing the national entrepreneurship policy for the government of Ireland. And I created a movement called Open Ireland, which helped the technology industry and Irish society by allowing the free entry into the Irish population of anyone that had an engineering degree from anywhere in the world. They could just basically get into Ireland and start working. Sean, I'm going to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I am an avaricious reader, as I mentioned earlier. Learning is a huge thing for me. So whether it's molecular biology or the physics of energy or whatever, I'm just really interested in learning all the time. I'm a duolingual user. I'm trying to improve my Chinese all the time. What's your most important daily habit? Walking. I walk five miles a day, at least. I make calls or I'm doing some meditation or whatever while I'm doing it. But it's really important to clear my head, get out in the woods a little bit and just get grounded. On the other side of that, what's your biggest pet peeve? I hate finger pointers, people who are not willing to take responsibility for their own actions or always finding others to blame. Because I think the antithesis is people who are builders and creators. It's very easy to blame people who are actually creating things. The critics have an easy job. I would much rather be on the side of the builder and creator than the finger pointer type person. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? If a founder was to spend the majority of their time trying to chase investment rather than improving their business, I think that is a crime. It's often, by the way, the same people who expect that every next round is going to be an up round, despite not meeting their objectives and their commitments that they've made to their investors. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Stan France. And then Warren Brueggemann would have been the other person who had a great impact. He was a senior vice president at General Electric. He was a graduate of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And so when I started my first company and I made a presentation to this regional board of angels, he took a liking to what we were trying to do and he agreed to join our board. And he really took me under his wing and he helped me understand 
a lot of things about time management and about working with customers. So he was one of the original mentors that really made a huge difference in the success of my first company. What's the biggest mistake you've made? What did you learn from it? After my first company, I started a company when somebody came to me, it was the beginning of the internet era, and they said, oh, let's start a company. We can make a lot of money really fast and we can sell it. So starting a company to make money rather than starting a company to make a difference is a massive fault. I should have had better self-control to realize and sit back and think about it. Whenever you start a company, it's like a seven-year commitment, if it's going to be successful anyway. And are you really in it just to make money for the next seven years? Whenever you start anything, you're surrounding yourself with people that have similar intentions. And so I was surrounding myself with others that also sort of had that base intention and that permeated the atmosphere. The company was an important company. It eventually, that's where I coined the term cloud computing, but it didn't end up succeeding in the end. I lost millions of my own money and the VCs that came in lost money as well. The thing that I guess I learned is that you attract people with similar intentions. And if you have a base instinct or a base intention, you're going to attract pretty base people with a lack of commitment to the business and easy for them to jump ship to the next opportunity that comes along. It's just the wrong way to build a business. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mom always said, finish what you start. And I do believe that that is a great piece of advice, although it's hard to do. <laughs> All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I've learned that people's confidence is often not related to their competence. And that, I think you can see that around you, people who have very forceful opinions and forceful ways of presenting their ideas and just being forceful, period. And actually, competence is aided with a lot of confidence, for sure, but 20% of chancers, and you got to just power through the falsehoods that they're willing to put out there. Confidence is also used as con man, is confidence man, obviously. So there's a lot of problems with confidence being used as a metric for a good entrepreneur. I much prefer confidence over confidence. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.